Welcome to TBA Now. I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah. I am blessed to know the many extraordinary people who are connected to our congregational community. This podcast is an opportunity to get to know who they are and what they do. Come listen. Dan Rubin is the director of school counseling at Newton South High School in Newton, Massachusetts. He is a deeply thoughtful, compassionate man who, along with a talented staff, cares for and about over 1,800 adolescents and their parents. Dan's also a Beth Avada Nursery School graduate, as are his children, who are the third generation of Rubens at TBA. His insights into the lives of our kids are as inspiring as they are challenging. Come give a listen. Dan Rubin, welcome to Temple Beth Avodah's podcast, TBA Now. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that you're here and you are such a wonderful presence in the congregation. And your presence uh, is not a new phenomenon. Could you give us a little bit of your background and how it is that your life is uh, entwined with the life of Temple Beth Avodah? Absolutely. Uh, my history at Temple Beth of Oda goes back to, uh, I, I suppose it was probably 1981 when I enrolled in the nursery school there as a not yet four-year-old. My family's history goes back quite a ways, going through Sunday school in the old building in Hebrew school on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, for our younger listeners who uh, don't know how how free they have it these days, but uh, you know, was bar mitzvahed and confirmed. You know, it's funny. I recall in my early twenties having a conversation with my own parents, where uh, you know, at that point in my life, drifting a little bit from my Judaism and fancying myself a, a secular humanist, and then uh, my dad at the time saying to me, "Yeah, that sounded like me in my twenties. Uh, you know, wait till you have kids." You know, sure enough, things came full circle. My kids, who are now 13 and 10, were both preschool aged around the time that we relocated to Needham. You know, we looked no further than TBA. We were right back at it as a TBA family. And um, it's been really nice to reconnect with the, the congregation and, you know, just sort of all that that represents as far as our multi-generational family and life cycle events. And it's really nice to know that you can go home again. It is a glorious feeling, I think. And what kind of led you back in? What drew you in? It wasn't just the preschool, or maybe it was. No, it wasn't just the preschool. Certainly the values that you know were just instilled through the religious education, through mm -hmm. my family. You know, I've always been a bit of a, a seeker. And one of the things that, as long as I can remember, that has appealed to me about um, understanding and learning about Jewish life is, you know, just the value that's placed on uh, seeking knowledge and asking questions, and that it's it's okay to have more questions than answers. It's a terrific Jewish uh, slash Zen approach to what can be a crazy and unpredictable life. You're suggesting, and I think you show it in both your work and in your family, that a values-driven life is the path that you most, that you seek and that you seek to not just live by, but to teach by. 
Yeah, I've, I've been really fortunate to have a lot of mentors, uh, personally and professionally, who have really influenced my thinking on my work and just on life in general. You know, I really, I hearken back to a supervisor who really was influential in my training and development, who at one point defined integrity for me as the alignment of your values, your beliefs, and your actions. And I'd never really thought of it that way, but it was this great visual of, you know, how can you weave those strands together to really integrate the, the key elements of, you know, your intellectual and spiritual life um, to, to be a person of integrity and where, you know, is instilling values more important in our lives than as we think about raising children. So certainly with the family life, um, it's something that, uh, you know, my wife, Julie, and I uh, pay a lot of attention to is, you know, how can we raise kids of character? You're doing a great job, I have to say, uh, as a, a person who has watched them from, uh, from preschool to this moment. I wonder how that notion led you to choose your professional path. Uh, you are the director of Newton South's uh, counseling department. And tell us kind of how you got there. And then I, before I forget, what I'd like to ask you to do is tell us uh, the dimensions of that department. How many people do you work with? And what is, how many kids do you work with? Sure. Um, you know what? I, I will start there because there are some real concrete answers and then I can back into the journey of how I arrived there. It's a good um, way to get there. Right. So yeah. uh, Newton South, right now our current enrollment is about uh, 1,835 students. I supervise a staff of 13 in total school guidance counselors. We've also got uh, school adjustment counselors, school social workers, and we are charged with really caring for the academic and emotional development of all of these young people. And, um, you know, as I think about how I found my way to this work, you know, within my family of origin, uh, you know, we had a lot of love and a lot of camaraderie and a lot of celebration. Um, one thing that we didn't do a lot of was talking about our feelings. As a result, I was a young person who in a lot of ways was was really starved for um, that emotional nurturance and connection and, you know, found that in a couple of really meaningful adult relationships in my own school experience, one of which was was with my own uh, high school counselor. So I, you know, early, early on had a sense that um, this was a possible career pathway for me. In my primary role and uh, the the majority of the the staff that I'm overseeing as school guidance counselors, we're kind of in the thick of it with students day in and day out from the really mundane pressures and stresses that they feel to some of the more intense experiences that our students may have. As you look at your students now, have you seen a, a progression, a higher level of sophistication about mental health given that the parents of those kids who a generation ago, uh, when you were in high school, parents weren't nearly as enlightened about mental health mm -hmm. as they are now, at least ostensibly. I'm curious what you see about that. As schools, we, we have a responsibility, and certainly in the Newton schools, we've been um, trying to, to do our best to eliminate um, that stigma that exists around seeking mental health care. We oftentimes, as we have the conversation around mental health, 
um, use that ter- term interchangeably with mental health diagnoses. Mm. And we forget that uh, promoting positive mental health and just taking care of ourselves by um, adopting healthy mindsets and practices that nourish our spirit and our mind and getting healthy sleep and nutrition and just all of those pieces that go into um, taking care of ourselves and and preserving our health are just as important to our mental health as they are to our physical health. Which is amazing when you think about the struggle, the pressures on kids to perform, to get ahead, to get into the right school. And so much of it is utterly and completely contraindicated for mental health. But the, the, the pressures can be really significant. I think there are certainly many indicators that suggest that the pressure is intensifying. You know, some of that is driven by technology. When I think about when I first entered into my career as a school counselor, the internet was still relatively young and the common application existed, but it was not quite as easy it is as it is now to, you know, allow that list of colleges that I'm applying to to blossom from mm-hmm you know, eight or 10 to 20, 25 schools, you know, that's not common by any stretch and not something that we encourage. But every year, you know, we see examples of students who are taking sort of a scattershot approach to applying to college. You know, I have my own feelings about the multi-billion dollar cottage industries that have popped up around college admissions. Absolutely. you know, you, you've got a lot of entrepreneurial folks who they have something of value to share, but, you know, oftentimes their marketing techniques are to exacerbate anxieties and it's successful. Yeah. We've seen changes over the years where what started out as good, sound, strategic advice kind of turned into gamesmanship. Dan, this is an incredibly complicated dance that everybody's doing together in terms of what I think is an absolutely clearly understood desire, which is to look out for the best for each child. And given all that, how how does this incredibly competitive world of academics, what does that do to your work? How does that affect what you do for and with kids and for and with their families? It's incredibly complicated. You know, institutionally, as we look at which of our practices might unintentionally exacerbate that culture of competition and some of those pressures that students experience so acutely that can wear them down, that can at times invalidate aspects of their identities. As school counselors, we're really right at the nexus of that. We do a lot of proactive, um, holistic work with all of our students in the building. But really, when it comes down to the um, responsive services, the acute care, particularly around mental health, there we are as school counselors um, helping to guide and nurture and support. You know, I, I imagine that feeling is is very familiar to you as, as a rabbi and a spiritual guide. Um, you know, I think about it often how truly in the um you know biblical sense of the word what an awesome responsibility that is 
Yeah, I, I you're you're so right, and and back at you about that because you know I I think there are those who think oh guidance counselor that means uh, they get you into college, and of course you're talking about this huge portfolio of concerns, a whole major portfolio of means by which you are present for helping kids find themselves, find their path, and to be present in the midst of adolescent self-discovery. Then we add to this March of 2020, uh, the beginning of the COVID pandemic, the coverage in the media about our kids, uh, particularly high school, seems to me to have come on two different ends. On the one hand, I've seen series in the New York Times, in the Globe, in the Washington Post, basically talking about just the heartbreaking, gut-wrenching reality of high school kids um, and the, the world uh, as it is during COVID, particularly in the darkest time when it was all Zoom. And then articles in the same publications that essentially say, look, the bottom line is the kids are all right. The problem is you parents, you have to chill out and not put your anxiety on your kids, that children are naturally, physiologically more able to go with the punches than uh, people as they get older. So if you let them find their way, knowing they're loved and supported, they're going to be fine. So given these remarkable extremes, and given that you are, as you said, at the nexus point uh, of uh, how kids are doing out there, let me ask you uh, the impossible question. So Dan, are, are the kids all right? You know, that that's... Obviously, a question that's going to have a different answer for for each individual, you know, because kids are experiencing this in so many different ways. You know, as as you framed the uh, the polls there, you know, what I kept finding myself thinking about is it's all about managing expectations. And uh, what I have found the common thread, whether we're talking about you know young people. Um, you know, my, my own young children who are not high school aged or the students with whom I'm working or the adults that, uh, that belong with them or my colleagues, the more we lean into expectations of the way things should be, the more thrown we are by those unmet or unfilled expectations. And thinking about the idea of acceptance without judgment, self-acceptance, acceptance of circumstances, and just allowing myself, you know, when I think about some of the, the life events, Rabbi, as you know, mm -hmm. during the, the, the period of the, the pandemic, uh, about two months before the pandemic, my mother-in-law was diagnosed with leukemia. You know, for, for me and my family, that was the dominant theme of our 2020. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course we were experiencing the disruption to the world, the same as everyone else, but our world had been disrupted two months prior and we were learning how to live with and through that. And, you know, I think about that often with the, the conversations that I have, whether it's with students or with 
um, parents or, or you know, just others about unmet expectations about the way things should be. When it was that first graduating class, the class of 2020, there was such a sense of loss around the the senior activities that typically characterize the the culmination of a high school career, the proms and the graduations. These central rites of passage just chopping in at the knees. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's continued onward and it's a huge sense of loss for all involved. And with any loss comes the need to do some grieving. We, we experienced a lot of folks feeling stuck in anger for a long time. And that was and, and continues to be really hard that none of us uh, were we creating the experience for our children? Were we creating, you know, just a narrative for how uh, our community and our our country and the world has gone through these last, you know, 18, 19 months w- would have chosen this path that we're on. Mm-hmm. But we've all had to sort of take that step back and let go and say some of these things are are just so far beyond our control that we really need to focus on, um, you know, how can we continue to put one foot in front of the other and navigate these life experiences with the hand we've been dealt. The the kids and families that I've seen who have really embraced that have thrived. And does that mean that, you know, it's been all smooth sailing? Of course not. I think yeah. about the students for whom, you know, their home environment may not be terribly comforting or even safe. And school has always been their safe space. And, right, you know, right. to, to be home and in isolation for an extended period of time, you know, I, I'm sure that that folks who have been really tuned into it probably saw, you know, one of the, the really worrisome statistics last year when we were really in the thick of it was the reduced number of calls to DCF, um, Department of Children and Families. And the worry that what that meant is not that there were fewer instances of you know, abuse or neglect in homes, but that the, the helpers who are in position to report those things did not have access to the children who, who needed advocacy. And um, you know, there's a lot of tragedy and trauma that has come out of, of this experience, whether that's um, you know the loss of loved ones or you know really disrupted experiences, and and as you know we oftentimes say, big T or little T, one's trauma is their trauma. Yes, and um, you know there there was a report in I don't know September of 2019, Washington Post that for the first time students uh, who attended high achieving high schools were identified as a risk category for uh, adverse mental health outcomes. And, you know, it's how we learn to respond to those traumas, big and small, that define our successes, not the the mere presence of those traumas. What is what is a big surprise for you regarding your work and what you've seen amongst the kids? Um, Either positive or concerning, but what's what's a big surprise in these first couple months? You know, when I think back to both last spring and these first couple of months, um, one of the really pleasant surprises has been just the the willingness from the overwhelming majority of students to comply 
with virtually any expectation as long as it affords them the opportunity to be in school, to be re-engaged with the activities that brings them so much joy and meaning, yeah. and just to be together with one another. You know, the, the kids have been incredible and um, just remarkably resilient. You know, we're seeing some behavioral issues that we've thought of previously as middle school behavior Mm -hmm. um, and students who really missed out on a significant chunk of their middle school experience are, you know, coming into high schools, not just at Newton South, but all over. Uh, We've seen vandalism and destruction in some of the bathrooms in the schools. This is a whole new challenge that we haven't dealt with before. Um, We really try to look at it all as an opportunity to help advance students through some positive discipline and interventions to achieve some of that that maturity and that more polished judgment that you know ultimately we 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 hope for all of our kids to uh, to achieve. So it sounds like uh, the pandemic has not been good for frontal cortex uh, <laughs> a formation. That's right. We're definitely spending time thinking about you know how do we incorporate more of that explicit instruction, whether it is exercising good judgment and healthy decision making you know that's not just the stuff of health classes or even the work right. with school counselors you know we're trying to infuse that across the curriculum how are the teachers doing <laughs> um people are overwhelmed you know and I, I don't think that's just teachers i think that's you know that's parents that's students that's you know i very rarely have i encountered folks um who, you know, have said, oh, I'm doing fine and dandy um, in Mm -hmm. sort of any walk of life where we've all been sort of living through this adjustment. But what I hear from my teaching colleagues is they all feel like novices again. It doesn't matter whether, you know, they've been teaching 30 years or three years. They're having to redefine the way that they're doing things. But, um, you know, as someone who's worked in schools for 22 years, you know, I've never experienced this degree of change in such a condensed period before. So that I think is the part that is just, it's just exhausting. And, you know, the the most rewarding part is uh, getting to just spend time with the students, seeing the, again, just the joy that they have of being back at it. Even if it's, oh, I've got three tests next week because it's the end of the term, uh, to a person, they'll sort of look around and they'll say, but this is so much better than last year. (laughs) And uh, I love that phrase because it's the coda for so much, right? You know, you get to this, oh, such a, so many things going on, but it's better than it was last year. And, and, you know, that that is a little bit of uh, wind beneath our wings. So, Dan, this has been, such a helpful look into a very complicated system that is directly related to these children that we love so much and care about so much. What would be two things that you think that you wish that parents would know or that kids would know? Just a couple of things that you think if we really got this, really understood this, that it would somehow uh, be helpful. And, and just to let our listeners know, this is not prepped. I didn't. I, yeah. I didn't ask you to have this ready. I know those are. It's a very tall order I'm giving you. But you know, you. I, I think that you're. A, you do have a visionary's perspective, and I'm sure the thought has crossed your mind more than a few times. So, if you would, so a couple of things that you think are, are essential for us to know moving forward. Certainly, one piece, and and this has. Um, 
some tentacles that extend from it. One piece, though, is the idea that going the farthest, the fastest does not necessarily mean that um, you're going to achieve the greatest success. And, you know, that's one of the concerns and the worries that, that I have um, about, you know, how, how the game is played in, um, in Newton and in communities like it. There, there's just this belief that, you know, if we do as much as we can, as quickly as we can, that's going to be the best route to the outcome, the desired outcome. And, um, you know, I often find that that is not the case. There are some perils that go with, uh, you know, sort of striving to be the farthest, the fastest, not the least of which is that sometimes you can find yourself out on a limb without a whole lot of support around you. And uh, there's a tendency that I see sometimes to sort of double down on some of those decisions. It's like once you've got the sunken cost of all of those hours and, and nights of anguish and the studying and the, that when it is time to say, I need some help, it can feel way too high risk or scary because all of a sudden, what, are, what does that mean? That's, that's pulling the emergency yeah. brake on the high speed train. Yeah. And, um, you know, we'll hear from students and parents, uh, you know, one thing that's come up during the course of, of just mm -hmm. this fall. If a student is, uh, you know, a close contact or has COVID symptoms and needs to stay home from school, we'll hear it from kids. We'll hear it from their parents. What do you mean? You know, if you miss one day, two days of school, the train keeps rolling. Yeah, and yeah. you know that's something that, as an institution, we're really um, aware of and trying to figure out. You know, how do we maintain the um, level of rigor and expectation in our academic learning experiences that students and their families come to expect without reinforcing this high-speed train, you know, hang on for dear life and God forbid you have to, you know, slow down or, or get off at a stop for, a, you know, a little bit of a rest. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I would love it if people would just sort of think a little bit more about what are some of the perils of that farthest, fastest approach. You know, the, the other piece is um, just the idea that, you know, our kids are really, really good at understanding what the target is and coming up with an effective strategy to hit the target. But very rarely are we encouraging our young people, especially our, our young people who are sort of aspiring to the biggest, brightest, best sorts of outcomes to um, really take the time to define the target for themselves mm -hmm. and to say this thing that I, this dream that I'm chasing, this thing that I want, is it really the thing that I want? Is it you know, how I want to invest my, my resource? You know, what young, young people, what do they have for resources? They've got their time, they've got their energy. And where they're focusing their time and their energy, for many of them, doesn't always feel relevant to uh, their personal goals. A young person who says, actually, I'm not sure I want to go to a four-year college. I, maybe I want to mm -hmm. pursue a, a trade because I love working with my hands. And you know what? I know I can make a good living as an electrician mm -hmm. or as a plumber. 
there, there's a lot of pressure in our community to stay on that academic path and to sort of deny, not even necessarily explore some of those other possibilities. And I think part of it is the adult pressures that exist in our community. You know, the loudest voices are always going to be the people who are inclined to be very public about, you know, the the types of successes that their kids are achieving or that they're aspiring to because they do sort of fit the socially accepted mold of, you know, what are we proud of? And I think that is the biggest piece in terms of what we signal to to kids is that we are not just proud of their accomplishments. They are not little walking resumes. They are human beings and you know, if they're not developing, you know, character and judgment and, you know, compassion for one another, we're missing the mark. Not everyone wants to hear that because sometimes the things that we need to do, the compromises that we need to make in order to perpetuate those goals come at the expense of, you know, the the academic rigor or so it seems, you know, right? That's That's the perception. Yeah. You know, I think about the young person who you know, wants to spend all day playing guitar, creating videos, creating podcasts. And uh, our kids who lean into those desires and diversify where they're spending their energy and their effort are oftentimes the happiest, uh, most well-adjusted, most accomplished young people. Um, Our students who say, you know what, I'd love to do those things, but that's going to have to wait because I need to take the right number of AP classes and I need to have all A's. Their transcripts admittedly look very nice. They're oftentimes they do get into, you know, the dream college. But we also have kids who look back and they say, you know what? I I wish I'd done high school differently. Or, um, you know, Harvard was the dream, but they only accept 4% of their applicants. And Mm -hmm. I... um, I'm I'm perfectly happy with the school that I'm going to, but I probably could have spent my time and my energy a little bit differently, led up to the same outcome and felt better about the experience doing it. It takes a lot of courage for our kids and, and families, parents too, to sort of buck the system and name that, you know what? We're going to do this differently. We are going to um, strive to have a, a, a well-balanced happy experience that doesn't have to be characterized by stress and anxiety and chasing um, the the elusive uh, admission to the right highly selective college. Um, it's not that college doesn't matter, although I was a panelist on a, a talk a number of years ago on the Frank Bruni book, Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be. Uh-huh. Um, you know, if you look at our list of Fortune 500 uh, CEOs, more of them went to state institutions than Ivy League institutions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's plenty of data to support that. It, there, there are so many different ways that this journey can go um, for our young people to lead happy, fulfilling, satisfying lives um, of success. I appreciate your perspective so very much. In a way, what you've just said now loops back to the beginning of our conversation, because really, it seems to me, we could say that two things of vital importance that you've pointed to, uh, number one, a kind of mindfulness uh, that is the ability to listen to 
the voices of our children and who they are and what they want and what we want together is a family uh, and what we want as part of a community and to develop that instead of necessarily grabbing the script without looking to the left or right. And the second thing that has been so very helpful is your stressing integrity. And I think so much points the way to making decisions that have the highest level of integrity, which is to say that they indicate a structural composition that can both flex and still stay strong, uh, that can be true and secure, even as it bends and stretches given the world we live in and what we're dealing with. So I want to thank you for sharing your wisdom and your time with us, Dan. And I, I would say that uh, uh, with you and with your staff, that um, to the greatest extent possible, uh, the kids are all right. So thank you so much for being with us uh, for our podcast on TBA Now. Thank you for having me join you. It's been a pleasure. Find all of our episodes on BethAvoda.org or on podcast sites everywhere.